0: I came to Hollywood and arrived here in August 1923 with uh, $40 in my pocket.
1: Imaginations everywhere! The visions once inside your head exist inside that place instead. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You know, when it comes to food, I'm very particular. I mean, I'm making a rule never to eat anything that's still moving. But that doesn't mean I can't appreciate food that does move. Like they've got here at the animated show called Kitchen Cabaret. It's sort of a cross between a Las Vegas review and a produce producer's production of a night of a hundred vegetables. Now, you may be laughing, but you're also learning. That, to me, is probably the most important thing about this entire place. That and the food, of course. W. W
1: information station. Hello and welcome to the WDW Radio Show Your Walt Disney World Information Station This is show number 140 for the week of October 11th, 2009 I am your host, Lou Mangiello Bringing a little bit of Disney magic to you each week In a fun, family-friendly show Thank you for tuning in once again We'll start off this week's show with some news and some rumors coming from Walt Disney World, including the introduction of a new ride, a new tour, and a new princess. With the recent opening of the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, and some recent reminiscing about the extinct Walt Disney story on Main Street USA, the importance of Walt Disney The Man came up, especially in relation to the Disney parks. And while there are many references to him throughout Walt Disney World, many people unfortunately overlook an attraction that is much more than an interactive museum, as Walt Disney One Man's Dream is a tribute to the man who started it all and an inspiration to future innovators. This week, friend and Disney historian Jim Corcus joins me from Disney's Hollywood Studios as we take a tour through and a detailed look at... This attraction which is filled with hidden treasures I'll announce the winner of last week's contest And give some additional information about upcoming events Before playing more of your voicemails at the end of the show So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show Just a few quick bits from Walt Disney World News this week. and We're going to start over in Disney's Animal Kingdom where new character meet and greets look like they're coming to the parks. Because as of last week, Thumper and Miss Bunny from Bambi began appearing over at the Camp Mini Mickey greeting trails. And rumor has it that another meet and greet location is being planned for Dinoland and will open later this fall. Obviously, as we see and hear more, I'll let you know about it here on the show. Another rumor is that the Crystal Palace in the Magic Kingdom is going to be closed for refurbishment from January 3rd through February 12th, 2010. During that time, it appears that the Liberty Tree Tavern is going to pick up the slack by offering character breakfasts, lunches, and dinners during that time, featuring appearances by Goofy, Minnie, Pluto, Chip, and, of course, Dale. I'm being told that over at Disney's Hollywood Studios, they're testing a new queuing system at some of the temporary meet-and-greet locations as cast members are now setting up a, a temporary queue area marked by blue pylons connected by a red rope and a large black box that bears the character logo. It's expected that if this test, which is currently seen over at the Sorcerer Mickey Hat, goes well, it may be implemented at other non-permanent meet-and-greet locations in all four parks. Over to EPCOT. October 14th is going to mark the official debut of the first ever attraction inside Innoventions, as the sum of all thrills by Raytheon is going to open officially to guests. This unique ride is going to let guests customize their own thrill ride using math tools, an innovative touchscreen table, and a robotic arm simulator. The KUKA RoboSim 4D simulator is going to create a four dimensional experience unlike anything ever seen before at Walt Disney World. They are currently testing and doing soft previews for cast. It is set to open officially on Wednesday, October 14th. I will have, obviously, more to come on this after the event and the attraction debuts. And if you try it, please call in your review to the voicemail at 888-703-2171. Reservations can now be made for a new holiday tour, called Disney's Holiday Delights Tour. This tour demonstrates how holiday magic is created for the Osborne family spectacle of Dancing Lights, the transformation of Cinderella Castle, and the Candlelight Processional. The tour is only offered on the following dates. On Mondays, November 30th and December 7th and 14th. On Wednesdays, December 2nd, 9th, and 16th. The tours begin at 5 p.m., Outside Epcot It's for guests 16 years of age Or older And is the cost is $179 per person Theme park admission Is not required And you can make Your reservations Or find out more By calling 407-WDW-TOUR Finally Princess Tiana Star of the upcoming Walt Disney Pictures Animated film The Princess and the Frog As well as Prince Naveen And other characters From the movie Are set to star in Tiana's Showboat Jubilee which is going to be a colorful parade with a jazz-filled Mardi Gras theme beginning October 26th. The party is going to move on board the Liberty Bell as she paddles her way down the rivers of America to singing, dancing, all kinds of jazz music. Obviously, music from the film is going to add to the show which is going to be performed three times daily through January 3rd, 2010. The Princess and the Frog is going to open in limited release in New York and Los Angeles on November 25th, before expanding nationwide on December 11th, 2009. That's going to do it for all the news and rumors from Walt Disney World this week. To discuss anything you've heard, come by and visit the forums at wdwradio.com, or if you have any news that you want to share, you can email me at lou at wdwradio.com. Walt Disney World is filled with incredible attractions and amazing shows and revolutionary technology, great restaurants, um, incredible cast members, obviously countless magical moments and memories. But Walt Disney himself reminded us that it was all started by a mouse. But I think that a lot of guests forget that instead it was all started by and because of Walt Disney himself. And what many of those guests also don't realize... is is that there aren't not just a lot of tributes to the man scattered throughout the parks and resorts, but one of the most impressive and important attractions in Walt Disney World honors the man and his vision and his legacy. And at Disney's Hollywood Studios, Walt Disney, One Man's Dream, give guests a look at the man, not the icon, and a very personal look at his life and his hardships and his successes and how I, I think he still continues to inspire young minds, even to this day. And, and joining me today at Disney's Hollywood Studios, right in front of the aforementioned attraction, to take a really detailed look at what is unfortunately going to be classified as an overlooked experience in Walt Disney World, is a man that that knows Walt better than anyone, and he's the <laughs> always affable, knowledgeable, and really lovable Mr. Jim Corcus.
2: Well, uh, thank you, Lou. I hope I'll be able to live up to that uh, incredible introduction. It's always a joy to hook up with you, and it's always a joy to share with your listeners uh, the stories uh, about Walt Disney and uh, Walt Disney World. And so I'm really looking forward to this uh, experience. And as your listeners can hear, yes, we are actually here at the park, not in some air-conditioned studio. We're out here in the heat and the humidity and the people wandering by. We even had uh, a woman in a wheelchair just recently pull up and she goes, I recognize that voice, it's Lou Mangello." And, um... So we're actually here, and so you'll hear all of that background noise and uh, all of that. As Lou pointed out, we're here at uh, one of what I think is one of our forgotten, hidden treasures here at the uh, studios. The the attraction, uh, Walt Disney, One Man's Dream. I think most of us have a, a great affection and, and respect and a curiosity about Walt Disney, who was such a, a visionary. And, in fact, uh, just recently in San Francisco, there was the opening of the uh, Disney Family Museum. It cost $110 million to build, and I'm really looking forward to going out and taking a look at that. Of course, there's a, a smaller museum uh, in uh, Marceline, Missouri, his hometown, and they're also going to be building a museum in Kansas City in the old laugh building. But for me, actually, one of the joys I had as a kid was in 1973 in Disneyland, Uh, They opened the Walt Disney Story in the Opera House there. And they had all of this great memorabilia. They had recreations of Walt's offices. And, uh, of course, that wonderful film narrated by Walt himself about Walt's life. And um, I will say that as my friends rushed off to Space Mountain or to uh, pick up girls or whatever, I was the nerd who was in there going...
1: I wish I could touch that. I wonder what the story is behind all of that. I remember as a kid here on the East Coast being a Walt Disney World kid, guy, Mm -hmm. as it were. um, We also had, at the same time, it opened in in spring, maybe, 73. Mm -hmm. We had the Walt Disney Story in Exposition Hall. You can still, if you go back there now, see some leftover remnants like the mural and stuff. But I, too, was fascinated by the person. And I think sometimes we take for granted, and I read stories all the time about how kids under the age of 12 and 13 don't almost, we take for granted that Walt Disney was a person, he was a man, he's just not the this icon of, of this theme park and movie studio.
2: Well, it's it's interesting that you bring that up, because uh, in 2001, when uh, the Disney parks decided to celebrate um, 100 years of magic celebrating Walt, they found that when they did these surveys, and even in colleges, that kids either felt that... Um, Uh, Walt Disney was like uh, Betty Crocker or uh, Colonel Sanders. Either he was completely made up or he was a real person, but he was just this figurehead. He didn't have any day-to-day involvement in in the business. There's no Betty Crocker? I, and, yes, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you about that. I, 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 I can see the heartbreak in, in, in your uh, eyes there. She, she's been well-preserved, I guess, for for decades. I guess all that flower works better than Botox. Uh, so anyway, one of the things they thought was, let's have an exhibit dedicated to Walt. You know, Walt Disney, One Man's Dream. And uh, I was flattered to be asked by Disney Insider to write um, an article about the um upcoming attraction, so I got a chance to uh, talk with show producer uh, Roger Holtzberg, who was wonderfully gracious, and he said uh, what they were trying to do in this attraction was create a journey through Walt's imagination. Uh, Roger said he wanted it dedicated to a man uh, who was never crushed by failure and never spoiled by success. And so uh, as we go through, I'll I'll share a couple of the things that Roger pointed out uh, as well in terms of uh, the design uh, of the building. And, of course, all of this stuff was out in California, so it had to be gathered up. And it was flown out by FedEx on an Airbus uh, A300 that was uh, renamed the Spirit of Imagination. And it flew out uh, June 29th, 2001. Where else except on a Lou Mangiello show? Can you hear all of this information? And so uh, 400 items and... Um, by golly, you know, it took a hundred years to gather this stuff together and just a couple of
1: uh, hours to get it out here to the East Coast. Uh, which, and it's it's fascinating. As we walk through and talk about some of the things, we'll point out what some of those incredible artifacts are. But the reason why I wanted to start out here, Jim, uh, was, number one, because I, I want to give you a break finally. And I'm, I'm going to bring you into the air conditioning for the first time ever <laughs> since you've been on the show. But more importantly, we've been sitting out here for about an hour on a mm-hmm. very much typical day here in Walt Disney World. And the thing that that saddens me and disheartens me is how many guests are walking by the doorway. Uh, it's, it's sort of sandwiched in between Voyage of the Little Mermaid and the somewhat popular Toy Story Midway Mania. And I'm not even sure that it's, it's Midway Mania that's making people not realize what they're missing here or, or not even bother to look up or look through the doorway. Um, it's just there's no sexiness to the attraction. There's a, a, there's a cast member at the door inviting people in, but um, it's a shame because people don't know what they're missing inside.
2: You're absolutely correct. And even while we were talking, we just saw that uh, one woman in that black uh, uh, shirt looking there and staring and squinting her eyes and turning her head, you know, like a dog does when it doesn't understand something, and then just turning away and walking away, not even uh, asking. But one of the reasons we're doing this is not just because this is uh, historical, and it may be historical because Pixar Place here, Pixar Studios, may expand and take over this area, so this will be gone, because this was really only a temporary area. But when was the last time any of you listeners have come here? Because things have changed. Items have uh, gone out, new things have come in, and since May 2009, it's now sponsored by D23. So uh, we're going to have some fun and just as we do on, on all of Lou's uh, podcasts, we're going to go take a look so that next time you come in, you'll look with different eyes. Maybe you'll slap your head and go, I was by here a thousand times. I never noticed that before or I never knew the story behind
1: that. I'm sure that much like our, our, the last uh, show that we did together again here at the studios in the heat and humidity, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be those series of, of wow and aha moments. And, and like you, I want to introduce people to what I think that they're missing because this is an important attraction whether you're a fan of Walt Disney or either if you're a fan of Walt Disney World getting really the genesis of of a Walt's vision of what ended up becoming the theme park so um, finally Jim let's I'm going to give you some air (laughs) conditioning
2: thank you so much Lou you are so kind he beats me people he beats me he takes me with a stick and he hits me and I, I need to be adopted out there. Okay, here we go into the air conditioning. Yes, please.
1: Welcome. <laughs> and here we... Oh, oh! It was all started by a mouse. And much as we said from the outside, almost on cue, Walt says it was all started by a mouse. I, I disagree with Walt only one time because it was started by Walt. I hope we never lose sight of one thing. Air conditioning is great
2: in Florida. Well, here we are in the lobby, and you'll notice already that the lobby is starting to twist and turn, because remember, we're going through Walt's imagination, and your imagination is not a straight tour. It wanders back and forth, and we're going to wander as well. And where do we start? We start on the yellow brick road. That's our pathway, but you'll notice that the roadway will change each decade. And then along the top, there will be photos to let us know what is going on in the world at that time, so it puts into context everything that Walt's doing. But one of our first ahas is we take a look around here and we see the wonderful black and white photos, the sepia photos. But directly in front of us is a f- large, full color photo. It's the only photo in here that's fully in color, and it's it's so large. What is the importance of that
1: photo? Other than the fact that it's color and it's large and it features Walt Disney sitting with Mickey Mouse. That is the last official
2: photo taken of Walt Disney at Disneyland. It was set up by Charlie Ridgway. You know Charlie, the book Spinning Disney's World. Um, That was set up at Disneyland. Charlie says either the last week of August or the first week of September, 1966, last official photo of Walt, going to be used for guidebooks and publicity and and, uh, all of that. A few more short months, Walt will be gone. Now, here's a little secret. Everybody is so excited about Hidden Mickeys. What is wrong with Mickey Mouse in that photo? He's He's got five fingers.
1: Very nice, from the there peanut gallery. We Excellent.
2: There we go. And we're going to take our little tour here and go into the next room. Okay, and you notice that as we've moved into the 1910s, the floor has changed from the yellow brick road to the wood that you would find, you know, in, in Walt's uh, farmhouse and... Uh, also his uh, house in uh, Kansas uh, City, Missouri. And again, along the top, you have photos and all indicating the time frame so you know what is going on in the world. Now, right over here is Walt's second-grade school desk. Let's break a few hearts. (laughs) That desk was never here, ever, ever, ever. All right. Uh, What happened is in um, July, uh, the July 4th weekend of 1956, Walt and Roy returned to Marceline, Missouri uh, to dedicate the Walt Disney Municipal Park and Swimming Pool. And uh, as part of uh, the festivities, he went back to park school that he attended. It was a two-story... uh, school. We see a photo of it uh, over there. 200 students, and it was both grade school and high school. And sure enough, they directed Walt to a desk, and on the desk was carved the initials W.D., Now, at the time, Walt says, I don't remember... uh, He says, I remember carving my initials, but I don't remember carving it on the desk, but it's certainly possible that I could have. And Walt loved a good story. And then he slid into the desk and invited his wife Lillian to sit there next to him. Now, Walt in those days was uh, a big enough man that it was still a tight squeeze, but he was able to get through. You can see this little desk. There is no way a person (laughs) could sit over there. Now... There's no way that the desk could have been here either, because when this attraction opened October 1st, 2001, the real desk was at the Ronald Reagan Library and Museum for the show Walt Disney, The Man and His Magic. I think it was actually the first exhibit at the Ronald Reagan uh, Museum there. And so it was there on exhibit, and then it went back uh, to Marceline, where it is uh, uh, to this day. Now, over to the side.
1: And just real quick, yes. if you read it very carefully, see the lawyer yes. me comes out. If you read the, the sort of the call out yes. here, it, the implication. It says Walt was shown a school desk seen in this photograph yes. carved with the initials WD, not carved by him, so.
2: And, and that this isn't the actual desk or a reproduction of the desk. Well, you know, how foolish you are.
1: A lawyer clearly wrote that. A lawyer clearly
2: <laughs> wrote that here. Speaking of lawyers. Yes. <laughs> Over here, uh, we see um, Abraham Lincoln, and you know there's actually a name for this? This is called the connection card, and it's called the connection card because it's supposed to show the connection, since we're following along with Walt's imagination, of where did he first get that idea, and then how did that progress, and how did that uh, develop over the years? And so as we continue through, we'll see this same connection card with different sections lit up. Abraham Lincoln. Now, what was Walt's fascination with Abraham Lincoln? Well, as a young kid, he was um, uh, very enthralled with stories told by Grandpa Taylor, who was a Civil War survivor. He was in the Union Army, told great stories and, and stories about Lincoln and all this, and so Walt was enthralled. But what would have caused Walt to uh, dress up as, as, as uh, Lincoln? Because uh, he went, you know, to he put on a crepe beard and a stovepipe uh, hat made out of uh, construction paper and his uh, dad's frock coat and learning the Gettysburg Address. Well, the reason he did that that year, it was the 100th birthday of Abraham Lincoln. That's why he was so excited about that. And yes, he learned the Gettysburg Address, very popular, and uh, Principal Cottingham took him to all the other classes and asked him to do it the uh, very next year. By the way, behind this connection card, yes, you see the picture of Walt, right next to him, that other guy, is Walt Pfeiffer, his boyhood friend, who later ended up as a
1: story man at the Disney Studios. And the thing I like about that is that, like everything you see, and certainly with things like that... You know, the selection of Abraham Lincoln as the first audio-animatronic was not accidental. It wasn't sort of a thing that was come up by the because It's because it had that personal connection to Walt, like so much that we're going to see here today.
2: Absolutely correct, Lou. Abs- you know, a lot of people think, oh, how wonderful. He just sat and he went, oh, a mouse. You know, no, that was a longer process than people might have thought, but it got to that same point there. And over here, wonderful, wonderful model of uh, Main Street USA from uh, the uh, original Disneyland. And um, uh, to cut one of those other urban legends, people say, well, this is, you know, Walt's uh, hometown of Marceline. Well, it's Walt's memory of what he thought Marceline was. Actually, some of the specifics came from the designer, Harper Goff, who lived in Fort Collins, Colorado. So, um... The uh, city hall, the firehouse, exactly the same as turn of the century Fort Collins, Colorado. And even the Emporium, designed after a bank that was in Fort Collins, Colorado. And you know, when you take a look at this model, it it really uh, brings home to you that on Main Street, there are only four buildings. That's it, four buildings. But all those different facades in the front, you know, make it seem like, well, there's so many businesses. that Nope, there's only four buildings. And there's a reason why there's a center street. So one of these days when we go take a uh, walk down Main Street, I'll point out the reason why there's a center street and why Imagineers have ruined the story by putting a, a, a building on there. I like the tease. I like that.
1: <laughs> Keep them coming back wanting more.
2: Well, I've talked to Lou about we're going to go to Toontown Fair as, as, uh, as well. Uh, over here with uh, Roy Disney and, and Walt standing with his brother uh, Roy, Roy went into the Navy in World War One, and a very uh, uh, funny story, of course, was that uh, Walt showed up to, you know, wish him goodbye, and the commanding officer just assumed that Walt was a new recruit and was going to usher him up on the ship. Roy had to stop him because Walt was willing to go. And... Um, you know, uh, Walt, of course, uh, uh, too young uh, to go, so he was never dishonorably discharged because he was never in the military. He was just a volunteer with the Red Cross, with the uh, Ambulance Corps. But let's uh, progress down a little further here. And, um, again, this, this saddens me because the animation desk here is not the one that was here in 2001. Uh, that was a real Disney animation desk... Uh, you know, from the uh, 1920s, 1930s. And you could tell that because it had five pegs at the bottom, because the peg system uh, changed uh, over the years. Um, but uh, this is a nice, uh, I guess, uh, a substitute because they're uh, running that film. But you know, that film of uh, this mysterious hand that's drawing uh, Mickey Mouse, that was actually done in uh, 1968. And those drawings over there are supposedly the very first drawings of Mickey Mouse ever done. Those are on exhibit at the Disney Family Museum out in uh, uh, San Francisco. But the unseen hand, the implication, of course, in 68 was, well, this is Walt drawing Mickey Mouse. It was later used in the Ub Iwerks documentary, and the implication was, oh, no, it's, it's Ub Iwerks. I have no idea. I don't know anybody who does, but it was done in uh, 1968 for Mickey's uh, 40th birthday there. So, yeah, the earliest, supposedly the earliest drawings of Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse uh, uh, merchandise uh, over here, very, very popular. And one of the things that people, uh, I always tell people when you're looking around in a Disney location, especially one where people were um, really concerned about the story and all that, you should look up, you should look down, you should look around the corners. So if you look up there, you see a Mickey Mouse toy? That's from the collection of Roy E. Disney. Yes, in fact, that was his own toy. And he donated that to the Disney company for
1: uh, display here. And, and we're looking up at the ceiling. Obviously, this is audio. And we're looking up at the ceiling at a Mickey Mouse rocking horse. Rocking horse, uh, pretty much that. Yeah, it's, it's right
2: above where the Charlotte Clark dolls are of uh, Mickey Mouse. Of course, the very first uh, plush. And it, Because, again, Mickey is never stuffed. Because if you're stuffed, you're dead. That's why it's plush. Okay, and uh, so Charlotte Clark, of course, sent her uh, uh, little nephew to the Alex Theater in Glendale to sit and watch the um, Mickey Mouse cartoons, and he was 13 years old, and make little sketches of Mickey. And uh, he had to sit there, you know, through the movie and all of that, to see the cartoon again and do that. And then she used those sketches to make the Mickey Mouse doll. Uh, her nephew was little uh, Bobby Clampett, Bob Clampett, who went on to do Beanie and Cecil and uh, uh, all of that. Now over here is the multiplane camera. And of course, the real multiplane camera you can have actually up to seven levels, and in fact is much taller than the the recreation here. In fact, Lou could be standing on my uh, shoulders, and st- we still wouldn't be tall enough.
1: You know that that's not camera. really saying that's not saying very much. But actually, uh, when I went out to the D twenty three archives and studio tour, they have sitting outright in the lobby is the original multiplane camera. And you're right. Now that seeing this compared to that, it's obviously fascinating and important, mm-hmm. but it's huge.
2: It, it absolutely is. You can have ab- up to seven different levels. One of the things that people don't realize, too, is that if you move one of those levels the opposite way that the artwork is moving, it'll seem like it's spinning. That's what they do with in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs when the room is spinning around the, uh, the queen when she does the uh, potion there. And of course, the multiplane camera was the design of uh, William Garrity because Ub Iwerks had left the company in 1930, and Ub created his own multiplane camera out of parts from a Chevrolet in a <laughs> in a junkyard. And when he returned to the studio in 1940, everything that he learned in his version, he incorporated into the version that William Garrity had done. William Garrity was also the fellow who uh, uh, created uh, Fantasound, and right around the corner of it over here.
1: Our same moonlight scene.
2: On the lower shelf, that green book, that is the very first Mickey Mouse book. It was printed in 1930 in an edition of uh, 26,000. We know that's the first printing because all later printings had on the cover printed in the USA. And there were a couple of changes on the inside. This was a sheet music publisher, and he had an 11-year-old daughter who had written a four-page story about Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse was in Mouse Fairyland, and he was always creating pranks. He was full of mischief. And so what happened is he got kicked out, and he fell to earth and ended up in a in Hollywood, and he went into a house to steal some cheese. It was Walt Disney's house, and success came. Uh, the rest of the book was filled with uh, songs and games and... Uh, Uh, all of that, so the very first Mickey Mouse book. Now, here's something that needs a connection card, and in fact, I'll make the connections for us as we go through, but over here, the Disney-themed Hallmark greeting cards. Uh, Walt was a very close friend of Joyce C. Hall, that's a guy, uh, who uh, created Hallmark cards, and the very first Mickey Mouse uh, uh, Hallmark cards came out in 1932. But there's a a, a wonderful connection between Walt and uh, Hallmark. And as I said, we'll be discussing that since there's no connection card over here, I'll be making those own connections. But right behind us, that's Walt's own desk. And that's his desk from the Hyperion Studio. That's his actual desk. And uh, in fact, when uh, Dave Smith started the Disney Archives in 1970, he inherited that desk. Dave Smith used that desk. And then for a while, uh, Robert Tynan at the archives, a very great, good guy, uh, used that as his desk. And unfortunately, had to give it up because you can see that it's actually too small and doesn't have enough space for all the stuff that you need in a uh, modern uh, uh, office. And again, here's another example of something that was here and was missing. Originally, over here, you had the... uh, Oscar and seven little Oscars that Walt was given for uh, Snow White. We have a picture now, but we don't have the actual Oscar. That, again, is at the uh, Disney Family Museum in San Francisco because, again, uh, that's owned by the family. And as we move on, I think we're going to get to, yes, this is one of my absolute favorites. I told you. I'm Lou, with you.
1: This is, this is by far my favorite part of this exhibit. Um, this we're
2: standing in front of uh, Granny Kincaid's cabin and, and uh, even people who come into the attraction this is one of the ones that they just walk by because they don't understand the story behind this Walt uh, collected miniatures. He had a huge miniature collection. He got fascinated by this uh, in uh, 1939 when he went to the uh, San Francisco Golden Gate International Exposition. Most people don't realize there were two World's Fairs in 1939, one in New York and one in uh, San Francisco. And In fact, uh, Disney provided uh, a a special Mickey Mouse cartoon for the Misco Pavilion for both fairs. Um, And he saw the miniature uh, collection from Mrs. Thorne, very uh, popular where she was recreating the interiors of uh, American and European rooms using just all all miniatures. And uh, he got fascinated uh, by that. Well, almost a a, a decade later, he went uh, to uh, uh, Ken Anderson and he says, you know, people here think I can't draw, I can't do anything. What I'm going to do, he says, is... I want you to draw 24 sketches, you know, in the style of Norman Rockwell, of life uh, in a Midwestern town. And what I'll do is I'm going to build those in miniature myself, and then we'll ship them out under the name Disneylandia. And we'll put them on a train and we'll take them around and people pay a quarter or 50 cents to see each of, each of the uh, uh, tableaux. And the very first one, uh, was Granny Kincaid's Cabin, and this was based after uh, the film So Dear to My Heart, where there was Granny Kincaid, played by Beulah Bondi, and those of you who don't know who Beulah Bondi is, she also played uh, the mother of Jimmy Stewart in um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life. Um, and so she actually uh, recorded a narration for this. And so Walt built this and then also put ads in the papers for miniatures. Um, but he knew he couldn't put it under his own name because if people saw Disney, the prices would skyrocket. So he put it under the name of um, his two secretaries at the time, and he gathered up uh, miniatures. So all of this woodwork that we see here, where where it, it's not quite even and the nail is bent a little ways, and, and the wiring, you know, looks, looks a little frightening. Every single bit of that is Walt Disney without any help. That's one of the reasons I love this. And, uh, in fact, when he completed this, and the reason for the wiring and all this was this was set up not just with the narration, but... Um, that lights would go on and doors would swing open and and, and all of that and the rocking chair would rock. So it would give the illusion that there was actually somebody in the house. Uh, This was exhibited at um, the Festival of California Living November 28th to December 7th, 1952 at the Pan Pacific Auditorium and uh, was a huge hit. And, in fact, the publicity material at the time said uh, uh, that this was the first in in several that Walt was going to do for Disneylandia. So Walt was sort of testing the waters to see what uh, um, an audience reaction would be, but also already starting uh, to promote. Now, even in this, there are things that that are uh, missing, and I don't know if uh, those were kept by the Disney family or whatever, but there was a table that had a... A uh, little Bible on it, and there was a flintlock rifle on the wall. But there's still enough here that you know some of those miniatures are from uh, that Walt purchased. But all of this woodwork, all of this wiring, all of this was was uh, um, Walt himself, you know. And
1: so I, I take a look at it and I go, I could build that. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't build that, but it's you know like the desk and and you know the, the romanticized version of, of the schoolhouse desk knowing that Walt touched that, that this literally was his handiwork, and again, what led this was really the beginning of some of the things we see in the theme parks now, adds so much more significance to it.
2: Well, and then uh, uh, Walt was so happy with this that he went on to um, uh, two more tableaus, Uh, One that we now call Project Little Man, but then also one that was going to be a barbershop quartet. So there was going to be a a customer sitting in a barber's chair and a barber behind, and then two customers waiting. And then when you looked out the window, you'd see cows and sheep on the hill and and things like that. And so he brought in um, Roger Brogy, Waithel Rogers, to to work because the mechanics were now getting very complicated. And... um, Uh, Roger said that they got as far as the man in the barber chair and the barber, and then Walt came in and he says, stop it, we're going to do this for real. And so that's where it progressed uh, to Disneyland. Uh, Also, it was brought to Walt's uh, attention that if you had these tableaus, no matter how many coins people put in there, only X number of people could see, and you wouldn't be getting enough coins to do the maintenance, the basic maintenance of this. And so right next to it is a real gem. This is the Dancing Man. Uh, Actually, it was known as uh, Project Little Man. Uh, And uh, what happened is in um, February of 19... And and Lou will tell you, I'm doing this without notes, right? And I'm coming up with these dates and everything. I see the woman with cue cards off in the distance. (laughs) So um, this is what happens when you don't have a girlfriend, you don't have a life, you can remember all these dates. Well, in February... um, 1950, uh, Walt brought in uh, Buddy Ebsen, and today we know Buddy Ebsen for Beverly Hillbillies, Barnaby Jones, you know, and and if you're a Disney fan, of course, uh, Georgie Russell, um, and Davy Crockett. But actually, Buddy got his start as what was called an eccentric dancer. And uh, Ray Bolger was an eccentric dancer. That was actually a vaudeville term. And so, yes, they were legitimate dancers, but what they would do is they would move their entire body or they would uh, you know, wiggle their legs so it almost looked like rubber or th- things like this. So there was an awful lot of movement because Walt realized that if you just filmed a real dancer, that's not theatrical. But if you get an eccentric dancer with the wild movements, this is much greater with entertainment. Now, what, Walt, uh, had hap- what had happened with Walt is in 1946, uh, he and Lillian went to New Orleans. New- uh, Lillian loved collecting antiques and all this, and Walt found a little golden birdcage. We're going to be seeing that a little later. And he was just fascinated because this- there was this bird on the perch, and when it played the tune, what would happen is uh, it would whistle in time, the the, the neck would move, the wings w- w- would flap, and-, and all of that. And so he literally gave it to Roger Broby, and he says... How does this thing work? (laughs) And let's see if we can do it. And so that's what we're seeing right here is the back is very much like a music box. Each of those round discs is called a cam. And you'll notice that there's uh, sort of bumps along the cam. Along the top, that long arm is called a follower arm. And so it follows along and then reads each of those bumps, which controls each of those cables. And each of those cables will then control some movement. Let's go around front and
1: take a look. Yeah, and when you mentioned the, uh, the bird, I, I love telling the story about how when I saw the bird at the archives tour and Dave Smith has it sitting on a table, you would think it'd be in some sort of glass-enclosed case. He just picks it up and, and it works. And the thing that's fascinating was that that bird still very much works. But, but the one thing about what we're seeing here with the dancing man and with that is that this is really it's important because this is where Walt, who, again, storytelling was of paramount importance, it goes to a new level because now it's sort of a a dimensional level of storytelling with, like you said, having the the cabin and being able to look out the window. And I think of the carousel of progress, how you look out behind the windows, behind the narrator, and see what's going on. It's not just a static two-dimensional screen or a black cardboard front.
2: Well, yes, and and in fact, in the Carousel of Progress at uh, Disneyland, in that final scene, when you looked out the windows, you saw Epcot. You saw the Cosmopolitan Hotel rising up and all that. Yeah, I I love Dave Smith uh, dearly. Dave and I have been uh, friends for uh, well over uh, uh, two decades. He's helped me out uh, many times. But one time I had him out here at Walt Disney World to uh, uh, do an interview with him in front of some cast members, and he pulls out... um, this drawing from Steamboat Willie, and he's holding it, and I go, what kind of Mickey Mouse archivist are you? Shouldn't you be
1: wearing gloves or something like that? There's oils on your hands? <laughs> put down the Cheetos, put some gloves on, and, and you know, but...
2: <laughs> but I, I guess he's so familiar, and I guess he knows how to do it, too. Well, the... the, the, the um, and as you can tell, we're actually in the attraction, so you can hear the background sound here. But... Um, here's the front of the attraction and yes that was Buddy Epson who was filmed in front of a grid 35mm film Walt did all the direction on it too Uh, and it was filmed from several different sides so that animators could do that Uh, This was carved, the figure was carved, not by Walt, but by uh, Charles Cristodoro, who was a very famous sculptor, actually worked at the Disney Studios and did some sculpting on uh, Pinocchio. And he was brought back uh, to do this. And as you can see, his foot's off the ground and all the... Where's it? Well, the rod is coming up from the back and then through the curtain, poking into his backside. And if you look closely enough, you'll see that the curtain parts just a little bit. But I'll bet when the, the thing was moving... Uh, you didn't notice that little part. In the, you know. You were so taken with that. And, of course, the great story of when this was installed, uh, Marty Scalar was here, and the Imagineers were putting this up, and they looked at um, Marty, and they said, Well, Marty, does this thing still work? And Marty says, Yep, to the best of my ability, and it looks in, in good shape, and, and it was great craftsmanship and, and all of that. And they said... Well, we have the cord here. We, we could just plug it in. And Marty says, you can if you want. He says, I don't want to be the responsible for the one that breaks it. <laughs> so they never did that. So D23, you're sponsoring this. I'm telling you right now, if this ever goes, what you need to do, bring in three sets of cameras, whatever. Do it there. Bring in some special guests, maybe Lassiter or Tony Baxter to sit and watch this. Plug it in and watch it go, and let's get it on film because we don't have it on film. And you can see what's running it, Right.
1: Yeah, and I was going to say, you know, it's impressive for 1949. I think it's still Mm -hmm. impressive in 2009. But if you, I think people probably are so fascinated by looking at the figure, they don't look down to see the mechanism that actually makes this work. And what is that mechanism? A, a wise a man once told me yeah. that it was a motion picture uh,
2: camera. Actually, projector. Motion picture projector, yeah. So the, the same type of thing that you would use for your movieola as an animator or whatever, you use what is there. And that, that's why Walt was an innovator. He didn't just come up with new things. He came up with new ways of looking at things. How can I, I, I use that? How can I utilize that? And so, yeah, this, Granny Kincaid's cabin, real favorite of mine. And even though this says, uh, Walt built the elaborate opera house set himself... Uh, guided by a design from animator Ken Anderson. Uh, being familiar with Walt's work, I, I know that um, he had more help uh, on this. And actually, here's a, a little hidden secret that most people don't know right over here. This, of course, is the uh, the Carolwood Pacific. And uh, probably most people see absolutely nothing wrong with this. And so that's why it's important, um, you know as a disney historian to look at all sorts of different sources because this photo is actually reversed and when it was reversed they had to change the 173 on the front and it was reversed because again from a design standpoint you're angling it to get people towards the doors and why is this 173 well because the uh, steam engine here uh, was based on a real Central Pacific steam engine that was 173. Walt was shown a bunch of photos, picked that one out as the, the one that he liked, and then they had to call the uh, Southern Pacific, which had absorbed Central Pacific by that time, and they gave him the blueprints. So they, so they used that to do the one a scale. And uh, over here, of course, is uh, a photo of the Carrollwood Pacific, and that, of course, is Salvador Dali sitting there, and that's Ward Kimball running the uh, engine. Uh, Walt had a, a couple of engineers that he allowed to uh, 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 run the engine and uh, because he was very, very uh, picky about who was going to do that.
1: And, and seeing, the, um, seeing the photograph of, of the unnamed little boy in his sort of sailor suit reminds me of a conversation I had with Michael Brogy, who told stories about how, as a child, he went to Walt's house and he was able to ride aboard the Carwood Pacific and Again, to, to humanize the person that somebody look at as an icon, Walt made him Sundays and then drinks for the other people. And that, you know, you can only imagine what type of experience that must have been like and wonder if at the time he realized the significance of where he was and who, he, who was making him Sundays.
2: Right. And over here we can see the connection card again. And, you know, the Lincoln... Had, has now moved to Project Little Man, which will then move to the audio animatronic Lincoln and uh, eventually to the uh, Hall of Presidents. We also see the grid, and we see uh, there we see Buddy Ebsen, so we can compare it with Project Little Man. And here is Ken Anderson's concept sketch for the uh, barbershop that was going to be done. Now, in the background, we're hearing this uh, wonderful story from um, uh, Herb Ryman. Would we and, uh, of course, that's the, very famu- that's the very famous story that uh, um, most people know is that on uh, Sept- the weekend of September 26, 1953, that was a Saturday. See, where else can you hear that except on, on Lou Mongello. So all you uh, Mongello cookers, right, Musketeers? there's uh, what, Mangello, uh, cookers? Uh, um cookers? Uh, you know that. Basically, Herb Ryman said he got a call early Saturday morning. It actually, it was a call from Dick Irvine. And uh, then Walt grabbed the phone and said, Herbie, you've got to come down here. Uh, Herb had worked at the Disney Studios um, on Saludos Amigos and Three Caballeros. And then he, he left and was an art director at 20th Century Fox. And currently, he was working for John Ringling North doing paintings for uh, The Circus, the greatest show on earth. Beautiful paintings. And so Walt says, you've got to come down here. And uh, Herb says, uh, well, it's Saturday. What are you doing at the studio on Saturday? And Walt says, this is my studio. I can be here on a Saturday. And, and Herb says, I said, well, yes, you're right. <laughs> and so he, 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 he said he didn't shave or, or shower because Walt wanted him immediately. And uh, he, he went down there and uh, in the room. Uh, Dick Irvine, Bill Cottrell, and Marvin Davis started to pitch the ideas of the Disneyland project that they had developed a- along with Harper Goff, who wasn't there. And then Walt, of course, you know, just stepping in. And Walt, of course, finishing up, you know, these other guys never get credited in the story. At 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 the end, Walt steps in and he says, and, and my brother Roy, you know, this is Saturday, my brother Roy on Monday is going to New York and he's got to take, you know, the uh, drawing to, you know, sell the uh, bankers. And Herb says, well, gosh, you know, I'd I'd love to to see that. And Walt says, you're going to do it. And Herb says the first word out of my mouth was no. He says, because I knew how tough Walt was, and I didn't want to be the one responsible for this selling or not. And he said, Walt uh, uh, turned uh, to the window, and when he turned back, there was a little tear in his eye. And he says, I don't know if that was real or whether that was Walt's (laughs) acting skill. He says, but I said, okay, I'll do it if you stay with me. And for the next 42 hours, with Walt pitching ideas and all this... Herb came up with the first design for uh, Disneyland that uh, sold the, the concept. And, of course, you know they ordered out for food. And at the end of the 42 hours, they literally collapsed. And uh, uh, Marvin Davis and uh, Dick Irvine came in and with colored pencils went in and did some shading and, and, and some touch-up and, and all that. They don't get credit for that, but they did. And they took and sold the idea. Now, this is the reproduction of the uh, Disneyland map. But, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, now we can't see all of the map. When the attraction originally opened, the doors were all closed, you know, because they were controlling the audience flow. Now, since you can send tumbleweeds through here, you don't need to do that, so the doors are open. But there's still some fascinating things on on the uh, map, and we'll point it out, because I know that your listeners love to bring their friends and family and point those things out. Not one of them go
1: Did you hear that from Jim Jim Quirkus? Right. (laughs) You, like the Imagineers, aren't getting the credit that you're due.
2: Yes. So let's, let's go over here. There'll be some background sound, but this will help out. You will notice on the far right door, if you look directly above the far right door, you will notice that Walt intended to have the Carolwood Pacific there in Disneyland. And then down below, you'll see that Adventureland was on this side. It literally switched to the other side when they found better uh, uh, landscaping over on that side for that uh, to do. And Tomorrowland was originally called the World of Tomorrow. You know, and um, Frontierland was called, uh, I think, I believe, Frontier County or Country. Frontier Country. So it was Herb Ryman... Who after doing all of this said, Walt, you got a fantasy land, you got an adventure land? Shouldn't it be tomorrow land? Shouldn't be Frontierland as it goes through that. And you see this little line going up here, and again that's obscured up there, but we'll see it on the map over here that there is a hot air balloon over Disneyland. That was Walt's original idea. And you can see yeah, and, there's actually and, and a three-dimensional, three-dimensional model of it. a model of it right there. So this is why you need to hire me as an East Coast uh, historian for Disney, because if you had known that, you could have used that to promote for... Um, Characters in flight. Absolutely, at downtown Disney. Well, let's step through the doors, see what else we can find.
1: And the fascinating thing about the mural, if you take the time to look through it, is for an under-two-day overnight sketch it was put together... Many, many elements that made it into Disneyland in their final phase. You can see very clearly in that first concept. So it's amazing how Walt had that in his mind and, he, and Herb was able to put that down on paper so quickly.
2: And, and again, you know, just filling up space because they didn't know what, what the budget was going to be. Uh, I also like um, the uh, painting that uh, uh, Peter Ellenshaw then did, which is on the first uh, Disneyland TV show when Walt says, I'd like to show you our latest and greatest dream and shows you that... that um, Uh, canvas, and that was actually a uh, storyboard that uh, Peter found, and he he did that, and then he also used uh, some luminescent paint so that when the lights dimmed, you could see what Disneyland looked like at night. Very, very cool. Now, you'll notice that the floor has already changed. It's that linoleum, you know, because we're in the 1950s, so as we're journeying through Walt's imagination and twisting and turning, we're doing that, and, of course, the TV sets and and that very famous opening of, of Tinkerbell. The Tinkerbell animation Again, you won't find this anywhere else, right? Tinkerbell animation done by Les Clark One of the nine old men And he was uh, the uh, Mickey Mouse expert After uh, Ub left the studio He was the one who did animation In the band concert and Sorcerer's Apprentice, all of that He was considered the And later went on to be a very good uh, uh, Director of educational films And the TV films But he did the animation of Tinkerbell And all of that pixie dust that we love John Hench Yes, isn't that amazing? Now, and it's interesting here too. We're going through these different lands. Why did Walt pick Tomorrowland, Adventureland, Fantasy? You know, because you could have had a Pirate Land, you could have had a Jules Verne world. You could. Why those four? Because Walt, of course. Of course, I, I'm not going to ask a question that I can't answer, right? Uh, those four, because those were the four most popular movie genres of the time. Tomorrowland, in the 50s, you're getting the science fiction films, especially the UFO scares. Um, Frontierland, a Western films, very, very popular. In in the mid-50s, you had 36 hours of original programming just on Westerns on TV, and Western movies, all of that. Uh, Adventureland, another popular genre, because on TV you had Rama of the Jungle with John Hall and Sheena, Queen of the Jungle... And in the movies, you had the Jungle Jim movies. Tarzan movies had just finished up with Johnny Weissmuller. And we we're going to go on with Lex Barker. And uh, Fantasyland, it? cartoons. It so Walt is already establishing for you that this is different than an amusement park because you're going into a film experience. These are sets, and you are the performer. And your your uh, role is that of good guest. That's why people act differently in Disneyland than they did anywhere else, because that was already set up that there you are. You're in a film, you're part of this film, and this is your role to portray. And uh, unfortunately, over the years, as Disney changes the story without thinking about the impact on the guests, the guests gets confused about what their role is going to be. But as I tell people... You know, you can always love the Disney brand but still have concerns about some decisions that the Disney business is going to make. Uh, I'm going to make a final Joyce Hall connection, but before I do that, I want to make a, a, a Midway one. Over here in the display of Mouseketeer items, and you can see that Karen's Mouseketeer costume has been replaced. In fact, a lot of costumes, like the Mary Poppins costume and all, were replaced because they found that the light, the air, all of that was damaging, and I can understand that. You know, So I, I'm not grumbling that, oh my gosh, they had to pull that away. I am grumbling that they couldn't think of a way of displaying it, but that's, <laughs> that's the whole thing. But up above here is a letter from Walt to Joyce Hall trying to convince him to become part of uh, uh, Disneyland, and Hallmark Cards uh, did. Uh, But also uh, a very, very nice letter from Joyce Hall where he says, I was flying back from London, seated near three sisters, ranging in age from 6 to 12. I asked if they had a good time in London, and one said yes. uh, But we would rather have gone to California to see Disneyland and go to Burbank. And I asked, uh, and what did you want to see in Burbank? Walt Disney. And I asked if they thought Walt Disney was a real man or someone more like Santa Claus. The oldest girl thought it over carefully, and she answered both, and I agreed with her.
1: So I, I love that story.
2: Uh-huh. I do as well, which is why we've recounted that, so it's on audio now, because if it's on a uh, Lumangello podcast, that means it'll survive, uh, you know, even with the cockroaches after the Armageddon. Now, Walt had two offices. He had his, his more formal office, which had that huge bookcase. And I have a listing of every book in that bookcase. And there's an interesting story behind it. But since it's not here, we're not going to talk about it. Maybe we'll save that for another time. Uh, but then he had his, his informal uh, working office. This is really where he spent an awful lot of his time working. Now, he didn't have animators come in here because he'd go to the animation department or where the storyboards were or whatever to do that. And for Wed, he'd go to, you know, Wed to talk to them. And he loved doing that in the afternoon because it picked up his spirits. This is where he had um, script conferences, usually with uh, the live-action film producers and directors and even some of the stars. So Fess Parker and uh, Kevin uh, Corcoran, Mucci remembered, you know, coming up to the office. This is where, you know... He would meet people uh, uh, informally. Behind the chair, you see that battered uh, brown briefcase. That's where Walt would put in scripts each night to take home to read, and with a colored grease pencil, he'd go through and make the changes and then bring them back. Uh, I asked his daughter Diane, I said, you know, did did Walt ever read you any like bedtime stories or things like that? She says, no, but I remember him sitting in the chair and my sister uh, sitting with me and he's reading scripts to us. (laughs) Um, for that to happen. Now, this is different than the setup uh, that was at Disneyland for uh, the Walt Disney Story. Because over on that side, where you see the window and you see the the picture on the wall with Walt and Roy, that was where the guests stood to look in. So over on this side, there was actually a window and there were two pictures on on the wall. The reason they shifted this around is because of the um, map for Walt Disney World over there because most eyes go left to right up to down and so since this is at walt disney world they want to emphasize walt disney world so they have that there you're really not missing anything it's like oh well what else what else was there that i i missed trust me i i've I've been there i've seen it not happening now one of the questions i often get is there's a, a portrait photo of Ed Wynn on the board What is that doing there? What's the story behind that? Well that was taken by Ub Iwerks' son Who was working at the Disney Studios And he was interested in getting into portrait photography So he had taken a portrait of Ed Wynn, Who of course did uh, Mary Poppins at the studio And uh, Babes in Twilight And he had taken that as a sample To try and convince Walt to sit for a portrait shooting But never happened uh, also over there, to, towards the left, on on the lower desk, you, you'll see that uh, there's that uh, bird cage. And yes, wouldn't it? That'd be great to film that and and see that working. And Dave could do it even without gloves. So we we could get that film for you.
1: I have it. You we have I, it. I have film of the bird. And and I tell the story how I have to make sure when I listen back that I edit out the part where I'm where I say I think out loud. Oh my God! The gosh darn thing works because I wasn't expecting that. And then, Dave, please put on some gloves.
2: Yes. Well, you know. So, so we'll be looking forward to Lou Mangiello DVDs here. Actually, actually, Blu-rays, right? Because DVDs are dead. Um, now, uh, there, there's a there's a bunch of. seated for the
1: next showing of One Man's Dream.
2: See, you can tell you're actually here. Now, on the, uh, on the back shelf back there, you see a little gold crown. You know what that gold crown is? That's that final connection to Joyce Hall. Only three of those were made. The gold crown was the icon for Hallmark. And he made one for Walt, one for himself, and I forget where the, the third one went, but that was there in Walt's office. And, and on Walt's uh, table there, and you notice that the table is low, so that there could there can be a lot of interaction. Walt isn't hiding behind a desk. You know it's almost like the round table. Everybody is you know, pretty much equal. Uh, on the desk is uh, the Disney World magazine. Wonderful magazine. I have a couple of issues. I wish I had a complete collection because they have uh, some wonderful, wonderful uh, stories. Um, now this was recreated by um, Dave Smith, who when um, uh, he uh, started the Disney Archives in nineteen seventy. One of his first jobs is, when Walt died, they literally locked up both of his offices. That's it. Nobody went in. And so Dave was the first one to go in after Walt's death. And he literally had to go in and take notes and uh, take measurements, you know. So there was documentation uh, for all of this. And uh, the phone company was going to come and reclaim the phone... Uh, because, again, it belonged to uh, uh, the phone company. And, and Dave pleaded and said, you know, and the guy, you know, looked over his shoulder and then just ripped the phone out of the wall and gave it to him. He says, we can't use this now. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so that's the, the authentic uh, phone um, uh, right there. And so, yes, Walt would uh, start his day... About 8 o'clock in the morning, I think he would have come in earlier, but he always had to drop off his daughters at school. And he'd start at 8 o'clock in the morning, hold some uh, uh, meetings here, and then, he, as I said, he'd go to different areas at the studio or, or off property. Uh, about 4 o'clock during the day, he'd always see the dailies that had been shot. Then about 4.30, he'd be back in the office uh, returning phone calls that he hadn't gotten to during the day. And then about 5 o'clock, he called for Hazel George, uh, the studio nurse, to give him a massage because, again, he had that old polo injury, so he had a very stiff neck. And he would uh, have his uh, secretary bring in a um, scotch mist. And Tommy Wilk told me, uh, Wilk told me that um, it was a lot of ice, and she poured in a lot of water and just sort of <laughs> floated the scotch on top, she says, because she worried about him driving home. Um, and he would leave about seven o'clock, you know, seven thirty. So, uh, how wonderful,
1: you know, what what was discussed in there, what was going on? You read my mind because I, I look at that office again. It doesn't have to be the real office or the real things off his desk, but wondered about the conversations that took place and how those ideas were formulated over that that conference t- table style desk, which was very small and, and intimate about, with the people around him. So. See? And again, we're over here at
2: Sleeping Beauty's castle, and we can see the original is currently on loan to Disneyland for its 50th anniversary celebration. Which I believe is over, isn't it? A little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> uh, so we're never going to get that back. Yeah, on the office... So uh, we have
1: stuff they want, too. Yeah, so.
2: well, the Disneyland cast members were promised, because they were heartbroken that the working office was, was uh, coming over here, And uh, they were promised that it would go back to Disneyland no later than 2003. Let me check my watch here. Uh, 2003. You know, and on the walls there, we see uh, attractions posters. And so, again, coming attractions. So that reinforces that theme of, uh, you know, this is all entertainment. You know, we're in an entertainment venue. This is um, the original model, although it's been, uh, uh, I'm sure, been rehabbed. Um, for Adventureland, and the the boats, of course, uh, um, inspired by Harper Goff's uh, love for uh, the African Queen, with uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart uh, for that. And uh, it was supposed to be very, very realistic, and uh, uh, thanks to Mark Davis, they started to add in... uh, uh, some humor because one of the things that Walt decided was he said, You know, I, I want it more exciting on the train ride around the park. And so, could you come up with some ideas? So, he came up um, with some ideas. So, for in Tomorrowland, he, uh, you would be able to see from the train, these were never built, you would see from the train uh, a crash flying saucer and an ET hitchhiking, trying to grab, uh, grab hold onto the uh, uh, train. And for uh, the Adventureland, Passing Adventureland, uh, Mark came up with the one of the trap safari on the pole and the rhino underneath. And Walt says, That's too good to waste on the train. We're putting it into the. And so a bunch of other uh, uh, ideas as well. But yes, I remember as a kid going to Adventureland and buying a fluorescent uh, skull. And uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> And here is the replica of the uh, Moonliner, which was the... Uh, um, this is a recreation, but because uh, the original was by John Hinch. And, of course, the original sponsor was TWA. And one of the things TWA did, because uh, 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 they were so happy with this, is they built a 40-foot replica of this for the top of their main office building in Kansas City. And by the way, Hallmark Cards is in Kansas City as well, too. And so um, from 1956 to 1962, that was on the top of their main building in uh, Kansas City. And then uh, um, I'm trying to remember where it went from there, a used car dealer, or whatever. But um, it, it's now back in the hands of the people who are doing the museum uh, in uh, Kansas City. So it's been restored and may go there. Uh, John Hench was the one who came up with that idea, you know, of that uh, walkway that would pull out and then attach uh, to the uh, spaceship, and then people could go onto the spaceship. And air- airlines started to adopt that because in the old days you would bring up a, um, a stairway to the airplane and you'd have to walk up the stairway to do that. But it was John Hench using concepts from Werner von Braun. Uh, for that uh, to happen, the future. And behind here we see, you know, the house of the future, uh, all of this. And we see Sir Carrama, which was the, uh, the first 360-degree uh, uh, film at Disneyland. And it's called Sir Carrama, C-A-R, because it was sponsored by American Motors. And so you were in a, an American Motors, uh, I believe, Nash Rambler, and you were touring through uh, Las Vegas and, and all of this and down Wilshire Boulevard. And one of the things they did is they, um, you know, they slowed the uh, uh, aperture. So it seemed like the car, even though the car was going 20 miles an hour, when it was projected, it looked like it was going 120 miles per hour. And then Walt plused it by adding in a police siren in the background and, and all of that for, for that uh, to happen. You know, but wonderful memories, too many memories. And if we look at the cards up above, 1950s, hula hoops, things like that, Sputnik, all of that going on. And perhaps the last DVD treasure set is coming out uh, in November, Zorro, the fox so cunning and free. Yeah, I love that. And this is the actual costume because they have a lot of those. In fact, uh, Uh, Didn't they have one on display at D23? They had
1: one at the Treasures of the Archives exhibit, yep.
2: So they have uh, a lot of these. Uh, Guy Williams uh, uh, actually got uh, 2.5% of all the merchandising of Zorro items. There were over 500 licensees for uh, Zorro items because they wanted to hop on the bandwagon because uh, uh, Davy Crockett had done so well.
1: well, I know we were looking back at the old Mickey Mouse items back in the, in the 30s and 40s. That was so important because it wasn't just about Mickey Mouse and selling Mickey Mouse plushies. That really was the birth of that character merchandise thing that not only carried through certainly for the Disney company, but, you know, some guy named George Lucas was like, you know, I think this merchandising thing might just take off.
2: Yeah, and Walt always called it cross-pollinization. Today we call it synergy, but he called it cross-pollinization. And... Um, it was like if you had that item, it would remind you of this, and so you would uh, 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 you know go do that you know because people are fascinated that uh, oh my gosh the, the Walt didn 't get any uh, uh, revenue from the Oswald candy bar and all that was was sold, and no they just saw it as uh, publicity. In fact, uh, Roy Disney said, uh, you know, we're a, we're a movie company. We're not a, you know, yeah, we're not a toy store. We're not a candy shop. And um, on those Charlotte Clark dolls, it was during the Depression. People couldn't really afford that. So Walt uh, licensed the pattern for the doll to McCall's magazine so for a dime, uh, a Depression-era mother could get the pattern and make her own Mickey Mouse doll. And that's why you have some uh, Mickey Mouse dolls from the 30s that that have you know green pants and all these other oddball things that happened, and so um, in front of us here uh, Zorro and uh, the Zorro uh, uh, guitar, and that was very funny because uh, Guy Williams uh, not only had to do fencing classes and also the bullwhip because Don Diego had to be that romantic that uh, you know romance the señoritas, he had to learn how to play the guitar and sing. And no matter how many lessons he had, he never learned how to play the guitar. And his singing was dubbed in by uh, Bill Lee, who did an awful lot of uh, vocals on uh, um, uh, Disney uh, songs. And uh, speaking of songs, Twenty uh, Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, the um, you know the song that's in there, "A Whale of a Tale," that uh, Kirk uh, Douglas uh, uh, sings, and. Um, Actually, the song is used as sort of his identification uh, song because it pops up a lot where his character Ned Land pops up in the film. Take a look at the film. The, uh, the musician and the songwriter not identified. And we just assumed that was a mistake. And, but they held a grudge against Walt because Walt would never put that credit in. And um, in 2005... Uh, they, uh, when the, the film was released again, you know, that huge, that wonderful special edition, Michael Eisen refused to put in that credit, too. Mm-hmm. So the lyricist and the um, uh, guy who did the music for Whale of a Tale, that's not there. But, uh, yeah, wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, film. And, again, people miss that attraction out here at uh, Walt Disney World.
1: I was just going to say, don't even get me starting to talk about the attraction. And, of course, we always tell people, look up and look around... Yeah. We've missed so many things that are up above us in the ceiling, but if you look up, you can see a wonderful model of the film version of the Nautilus. Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: And again, uh, uh, what Walt wanted was a slender, almost like a cigar case. In fact, he pulled out a cigar case uh, to show Harper Goff, and Harper Goff said, no, uh, what would happen is, you know, at that time period, What material would Nemo have access to and so he combined actually an alligator and a shark because again the description in the book was uh, oh my gosh you know uh, this is a sea beast, a sea monster so what would the design be that would look like that and the Dumbo up there isn't the uh, an original Dumbo because uh, at least not an original Dumbo from the 1950s uh, Disneyland because the original Dumbo had hinged ears so they could flap. They never worked, but Walt wanted them, you know. And Walt was standing with Bob Gurr one day, and Bob Gurr, and he says, uh, "I want flapping ears." And Bob Gurr says, "Well, whose park is it?" Walt says, "It's mine. I'm going to have flapping ears." So, but but again, they just Mechanically at that time, Walt had a lot of great ideas, but oftentimes the technology did not exist at that time for that to happen and you 're right. one of the things we passed here was uh, the Peter Pan uh, uh, dark ride, and when you take a look at it from an aerial view, you notice that it twists and turns and twists and turns, and that 's the purpose of a dark ride is to create a sense of disorientation, and the darkness your mind fills in the gaps and um, so here's a here's a little secret. Here's here's a little reward for those of you who have listened this long. At the Walt Disney World attraction ride when the Peter Pan uh, uh pirate ship is flying above London, you look down below and you see the cars down below you. And it's got to be this is Disney, that's got to be fiber optics or something. <laughs> It's a bicycle chain with little dots of fluorescent paint in descending order so that as they go underneath the lights, it looks like a car is coming and then going off into the distance. Sometimes, you know, the the simplest are the best.
1: Huh. Oh, my gosh. So we're coming to, again one of my favorite parts of the exhibit, um, starting with the project X or the Florida conference room. And there's obviously that, that famous film of Walt standing in front of what was his map of what Walt Disney world and what Epcot and everything else was going to be. And it's created like they're filming, they're actually filming that with the web TV cameras.
2: Yes. And, uh, this is amazing. Um, there was a Florida conference room at uh, Wed uh, in uh, Glendale, California, but this film was actually filmed at a studio, on, at the Disney Studios, with, with the mock-up. And, uh, in fact, Marty Scalar told me that, that bit where Walt goes, according to this map, I am six miles, that was a Walt ad-lib. That wasn't in the script that uh, Marty had uh, had written. And again, this was filmed uh, the end of uh, October 1966, um, uh, shortly before Walt was going to go in and get one lung removed. And then later they found that the cancer had metastasized, so he had to go back in. So, you know, uh, about a month and a half uh, before he passed away, and here he is. And that's one of the reasons that you see Walt sitting in a chair so much. And uh, while they were doing the um, uh, creation of this um, uh, attraction, uh, the Imagineers actually got to, to listen to the outtakes, mm-hmm. and Walt apparently was coughing quite violently and, and, and basically says, "Marty, can't you stitch something together from what you got now you know for, for this uh, to, to happen." But Walt wanted this. Uh, you know, uh, to go. Uh, I, I don't believe this is the last film he made. The last film he made were the last couple of introductions um, for the um, uh, Wonderful World of Color show. The very last. Uh, introduction because he he filmed several introductions in a day you know to do his time. the very last one uh, was uh, for a salute to Alaska, which uh, wasn 't run until uh, Walt passed away in december sixty six This wasn't run until, I I want to say, about um, March 67. And, in fact, uh, I wish I had a tape of that because um, they had a uh, disclaimer at the beginning, which is, yes, Walt Disney has passed away, but he filmed this before his death. But if you take a look, he looks very, very uh, pale, and he's just standing by the flag uh, of Alaska. And we're taking a look at the map, and we see down there in the lower left, that's where the... uh, uh, airport was going to be, you know, and uh, in fact, uh, there's a, a complex of uh, Disney offices on 192, which is called Main Gate. And most people don't realize the na- reason it's called Main Gate is because that was going to be the entrance to Epcot. That was going to be the main gate that was going to, to take you in uh, through there. And uh, in Epcot, uh, there were going to be uh, limited to twenty thousand citizens, and uh, you had to either be working or go to school. You couldn't be retired, and uh, there were ground rules. You, you you couldn't be living with somebody that you weren't married to. You know, if you were of opposite sexes, public drunkenness would kick you out of there. You weren't allowed to have pets because pets would ruin the the landscaping of, of, of Epcot. And now, how Walt was going to plan to make all of this work,s and. Since today we can't even control, you know, a, a, a couple of uh, uh, college students and, and international cast members, you know, for eight hours on stage, but uh, obviously he knew, you know, what what was going to what was going to happen.
1: And, and we can certainly talk for hours about Walt's concept for Epcot, how that evolved through the years, what we have now, and how very different that, that certainly is. And
2: as you can see. We know we're ending Walt's story. Why is that? Because it's the exact same photo that we started the story with. Walt uh, sitting there in his little electric car with uh, Mickey. Actually, there were a couple of shots uh, taken from this same photo shoot. So I think there's even one that's uh, sold on uh, property in, in black and white. But yes, this is the last official photo. There's some private photos that were taken you know, by, by the family, but that was it. Walt Disney, what a, what a loss. And again, what a surprise because even though he coughed, even though uh, uh, you know he would have a, a bad cold at least once a year and, and all of that, even though he had that bad back through the, the polo industry in, um, injury, uh, nobody was really told. I, I talked with Marty Scolar and I said, when you were filming uh, uh, that, uh, that Epcot film, did you know that Walt was really sick? He said, no, you know. We, we, we couldn't tell. And so when he went in, it was, it was
1: quite a shock that he didn't come back out. As we get to this next display case, a big smile comes across my face <laughs> because Walt Disney World is my passion. And mm-hmm. I, I was here, the first time I was here was November of 1971, dressed to the nines, of course. Thanks, Mom. But I look in this display case of early Walt Disney World memorabilia and I think about how much of this I have, Stored away in a warehouse in New Jersey somewhere <laughs> still But somewhere I do have it And, and such great, great stuff
2: well, and, and you should get it out of that uh, warehouse and into your house, and then invite your listeners <laughs> over. In fact, hey. I'm inviting them over right now. Come see. Come help. <laughs> uh, come help Lou. Un- An
1: unpack unpacking part And, 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 sure.
2: and display that. <laughs> and uh, you know the uh, original Walt Disney logo, Walt Disney World logo. There, the, the D with the uh, world with the ears. That started to pop up on some new merchandise on Walt Disney World property now. So there's somebody out there who, who understands and, and loves that as well. So. Yes, uh, uh, amazing. You know, and the little orange bird up there. Boy, it needs, uh, you the know, the little, little orange, orange right.
1: bird. When chocolate. they used to serve, and I remember this as a kid, when they used to serve yeah. the orange juice in a plastic orange, and they used to serve the Welch's grape juice in the little plastic grape mm-hmm. thing. And, and I think I, I used to want it not for the juice itself, right. but for the little cup. I know, I know. Um, Boy, I we're actually, really
2: old, aren't we? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, <clears throat> we're, we're, we're ripe, that's all. Um, the, the early map and again mm-hmm. if you look you see mm-hmm. where a Caribbean plaza just doesn't exist um, the Walt Disney World coloring book I have so mm-hmm. many of these little uh, decorative plates and the Main Street USA I actually still have in my office right now the banner the pennants were, were very very big back then mm-hmm. and I have a number of pennants right. uh, including one from um, we talked about from um, the Empress Lily right
2: yes yes we talked about that the last time uh, we got together and we're uh, we're talking about things so, again, an incredible uh, uh, treasure trove, and, and I'm sure even more that could be uh, uh, shared here. Um, you know, and just right around the uh, corner of this, as we get into the audio animatronic, just above the little sign that says Sculpture Shop, you'll see Mark Davis and uh, Bill Justice with the early audio animatronics for Pirates of the Caribbean, and you'll see those same cams that we saw on Project Little Man. Um, for that to go through. And again, we're seeing, you know, uh, Lincoln as that uh, uh, came through. But the very first audio animatronic, of course, were the tiki birds because they were very, very simple. Because all it took was you would open the mouth and close the mouth. You wouldn't have to worry about the lips forming words and syncing uh, 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 to that. So just open and close. And audio animatronics, of course, come from, um, it was the same technology that they were using for missile launches. You know, because uh, how does that uh, section know that it's going to release, you know, from the missile? Well, there's actually an audio cue that, you know, releases that servo so that releases so that goes. So, using that same technology, you're you're doing that so that cue will release that so the beak will open. And then when you close it back up, the beak closes back back up. And so that's the audio anima comes from animation, which is not just life But the illusion of life, the illusion of life for that, and Tronics, of course,
1: electronics. But uh, again. I I like this, um, mm -hmm. I like the section too, because number one, it not only gives you a sense of what went on behind the scenes and a Mm -hmm. technology that has evolved, but still has very much its roots in what you see here, but it's also interactive, where you can hit some of the buttons and make them work. And I love the the Tiki Bird here, because for years, when I heard the story of Walt bringing back the bird Mm -hmm. with his wife, this is what I imagined, something that was about 12 mm-hmm. inches long, not that tiny little bird that, again, so Dave delicate, Smith is, is yeah. juggling around like a circus clown, <laughs> but I also figured when he gave it to his Imagineers to sort of reverse engineer, they would have taken it apart and it would have just been disassembled. Been destroyed at that point. And it looks exactly the way probably Walt had it, you know, that when it was built 100 years ago. Absolutely. And... That control panel there is
2: what they developed, you know, for doing the human audio animatronics, all the dials, and they've actually got it done up with sort of a, a skeleton. One of those exists under the magic Kingdom. Bill Justice, of course, being one of the primary uh, uh, designers. Uh, for that, and he has artwork all over that mm-hmm. Chippendale and, and the Gremlins. Again, something we can't see. But since all those uh, d- big uh, D23
1: bigwigs are listening <laughs> to this, this is what people want. Film the project, Little Man. Film. Well, them. they brought one out to yeah. D23 that a huge audio animatronic exhibit. Again, I have video mm-hmm. of that, um, which if I haven't released it by the time this show <laughs> airs, I-, I will be released very very soon. Mm-hmm.
2: And you'll notice that there are new exhibits in here, too. In fact, here is the Wildebeest mask from the Lion King Broadway show and how huge this is. I've seen the show. I love the show. Uh, I have a theater background, and I, I, I love the show. So it's not just as a, uh, uh, a Disney file. And so here's, here's something brand new that you probably haven't seen. And, in fact, some items have been uh, donated to the American History Museum um, in Washington, D.C., on, on the mall. Uh, Rafiki's costume, mm-hmm. Simba's mask, uh, uh, a couple of uh, those things, you know. And Lion King. By God, Julie Taymor was terrific, and she was developing another Broadway show for Disney, Pinocchio. Wow. Yes, but we don't hear anything more about it now, and she's now tied to the new uh, Spider Man Broadway musical.
1: Pinocchio on Broadway, I like that. Maybe we should go to Las Vegas and go see the Las Vegas version of the Lion King. <laughs> I, I know.
2: A, to- a topless Lion King. Yes. I, I've, that, that's got to be what it is if it's in Vegas, right? So, um, and here's a, another new display. This is a, a display of a typical D23 uh, Disney fan room. I wonder who,
1: whose room this is. Imagine your Eric Jacobson's If you look on the left-hand side, you see his charter member certificate.
2: Uh, eric jacobson a really good guy i I think he really gets it when it comes uh, to disney um i don't feel that this is really uh although it's displaying an awful lot of d23 uh, stuff which i I would expect uh, i don't think this really is a uh, an accurate reflection of a disney fan uh, room because i've seen it go one or the other extreme one is like my place which is it's an explosion. Things are all over the place, and I pick something up, and I put it down somewhere else and don't know where it is, and and all they've got is DVDs and Blu-rays. I've got VHS, for crying out loud, and all of that. Uh, but then I've also seen it gone the other way, where people, Disney fans, are just absolutely meticulous, mm-hmm. and and in terms of displaying their things as well. So they have the the shelves, and not only do they have the figurine, but behind the figurine is a mirror, so you can see not just the front of the figurine, but the back as uh, as well, you know. But, uh, so this is a, a an interesting new touch, and uh, uh, I hope the D23 uh, really opens up more uh, uh, interest in uh, uh, Disney history, more research, uh, more activities. Um hope D23 hires me. That's all yeah. I... Let, let's see what else is new here. Three minutes. Three
1: minutes, okay. Oh, all... all right, so the... the mm-hmm. Former location of the Tokyo Disney C mm-hmm. model, which was spectacular, um, has now been replaced.
2: Right, by uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios. And I don't know why this replacement uh, um, uh, took place, and you'll see that it continues on in other display cases out here uh, uh, as
1: well. Was and- this done for the recent anniversary? Was that maybe for the recent 20th anniversary and then? Yeah, they just decided to keep but, but, it. Here. But
2: then, but then I figured, you know, it would be more elaborate that they'd have some models or, you know, a lot of the stuff you can find in Jim Corkus's house. I, absolutely. <laughs> Let's or, have a tour or, of Jim's house. There you well, go. Well, actually, some of this stuff you'll probably uh, uh, find. Uh, uh, starting tomorrow after I find out how to jimmy open this. <laughs> I thought
1: you meant you were going to put your collection up on eBay because no. then I have to start trolling it, eBay. It, it,
2: it, it's getting to just about that point. And, and I missed the uh, uh, Tokyo Disneyland display but it, again, uh, before we even came in here, Lou promised that if he won the lottery he'd take me over there. So I've got that on tape now. Really? Right. So, so, so this is true. And uh, now we're just about ready to enter and we won't be commenting on this but uh, the uh, film that uh, was uh, put together, and uh, they went through all sorts of um, Walt interviews. Uh, in fact, Pete Martin did uh, 12 hours worth of interviews with Walt, with uh, his daughter Diane, uh, for that uh, uh, book, "The Story of Walt Disney," "My Dad, Walt Disney," uh, that came out in the um, uh, '57. And so, you know, you're having Walt tell the entire story. Now, the only little speed bump was originally the film was narrated by Michael Eisner, and that had a tendency to upset uh, uh, a lot of uh, Disney fans. In fact, there were a lot of complaints going to guest relations on that. So in 2005, when Bob Iger took over, very quietly and without any fanfare whatsoever... Uh, the narrator, uh, Michael Eisner, was replaced as narrator with uh, Julie Andrews, who is then the uh, unofficial ambassador of the, uh, the the 50th. And who can hate Julie Andrews, right? <laughs> Julie Andrews is absolutely wonderful. Well, you know, we've just touched barely on, on some of the things in here, but I, I hope that uh, what has happened is uh, that your listeners will now think, you know, I should go back there and, and take a look at that before that's gone. And, you know, I'll take a look at that and maybe understand a little bit better of why that's there.
1: And I think, too, it's important not just for adults to come here and and take in and, and learn about the history and learn about the man himself. Mm-hmm. But and, and we've watched this, too, as we have been walking mm-hmm. through. I've been taking notice of parents should bring their kids and recount the stories that they've learned mm-hmm. from Jim to them because I think this should serve not just as, and a museum is, 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 the, is the wrong word, but for, for lack of a better term, a, a museum for people, but it should serve as a, a learning and an inspirational tool an, as well.
2: Interactive
1: emotional experience. See, I like that. I like that. <laughs> That's why Jim deserves the big bucks. Um, so yeah, uh, Walt Disney, One Man's Dream. I hope that this stays around and mm-hmm. continues to grow and evolve and change. As much as I, I am a nostalgic and like seeing certain mm-hmm. things here. I hope it does change so we as fans do get to see some of these treasures from the archives. Remember, this was the first time anything from the archives was ever brought out on display. I hope it continues in this form and in addition to what D23 is able to bring to guests.
2: And and again, my fascination, of course, is with the, even though they've done very well with some of the reproductions, I like the, seeing the actual thing. Right. It, it, you know, it makes, is important, and I'm hoping that now that D23 is sponsoring this uh, um, attraction that we will start to see, you know, uh, some positive changes and maybe even some more publicity about this for, for this uh, to happen. And uh, Lou, as always, thank you so much for the opportunity. And uh, I look forward where we can get together again and take a tour through uh, another location. I know we've discussed Toontown Fair. Maybe that'll happen.
1: You know, you know a lot of Toontown's outside. Is that all right? Mm-hmm. So right? We'll have to do it like in <laughs> December or January. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'll, I'll, just have, I'll just have to uh, get my fill of air conditioning before that happens. Exactly. But, yeah, but we're getting into the uh, fall months now, so it's probably going to be a little better.
1: And again, Jim, uh, what you the, the stories that you tell, stories that you can't hear anywhere else, to hear you tell them with such passion is just wonderful for us um, to, hear, to, to read more of Jim's stuff. Uh, I'll put links in the show notes to many books he's contributed to. And Celebrations We're, Magazine. We are incredibly proud and grateful to have you as a contributor to Celebrations. He's done some fascinating articles, and we know that there's more to come as well. So uh, until next time, my friend, thank you so much.
2: My pleasure, as always. And keep listening to Lou Mangiello. Buy those CDs. Buy that magazine. What else are you selling? Whatever else he's selling, buy it. Buy it. <laughs> PR. He wants the PR dollars
0: now. <laughs>
1: It's time to announce the winner of last week's somewhat impromptu trivia contest. As you recall, as we were doing a recap of the Adventurers Club event, the Food and Wine Festival, and the Expedition Everest Challenge, I decided to throw out three questions. uh, Not necessarily trivia questions, but about things that had happened that you could have found either on the show or on some videos, things that have happened with us on the show over the past couple of weeks. And the three questions that I asked was, number one... During the Adventurers Club event, Glenn Whelan, uh, at the encouragement of Babylonia, the great stone goddess, sang a song and sort of led the crowd in song. What song was it that Glenn burst out singing? And that was, You Lost That Lovin' Feelin'. For question two, I talked about the video interview that I did with Gary Vaynerchuk and asked you, what did he say his favorite attraction was? during that interview. And if you caught the video or went back and took a look at it, you'd know that he said, far and away, it was the Haunted Mansion. And question three, on one of the videos that I've posted so far from the D23 Expo, the first one really was just sort of of a fun recap and a photo montage of the four days. And I asked you that in that video, where did the group of us, people who were at the table and some people from MouseFan, where did we eat? One evening over at Disneyland, and the answer was, of course, Goofy's Kitchen. How appropriate. So I randomly selected one winner from all the correct entries, and yes, all of you got these right. And this week's winner, who's actually gonna win one of the very limited edition Adventurous Club custom backpacks filled with all kinds of goodies, is Kelly Zanoskis. So, Kelly, congratulations. Uh, To you and everybody who played, please send me your address. I'll get your prize package out to you. Thank you to everybody else who played. Stay tuned in the next week or so for another trivia contest where you can win some prizes. And thanks to everyone again for playing. That's going to do it for this week's show. I hope you enjoyed our tour of Walt Disney One Man's Dream and you find yourself inspired to go through and take your time looking at and learning from this incredible attraction. So big, big thanks go out to Jim Corcus. He will be back again, I promise you, with some more fascinating segments. You can find more of his work in many books and in Celebrations Magazine. And if you want to contribute photos, articles, your assistance or even a letter to the editor to the magazine, you can email me or use the contact link over at celebrationspress.com there you can also get back issues and subscribe to the magazine as well if you missed our last meet of the month in Walt Disney World please come by and say hi later on this month, I love meeting you guys and the next meet is going to be Saturday October 24th at 11am at coincidentally Disney's Hollywood Studios it's the Tower of Terror 13K weekend food and wine is still going on so we're going to meet over at the studios at the Backlot Express restaurant which is next to Star Tours at the upper level outdoor seating area we'll get together we'll chat we'll eat if you like maybe even hit Star Wars afterwards if you like anything at all please come by say hi RSVPs not necessary but appreciated just so we can know who's coming I'm going to post meat info over in the forums and on Facebook. Uh, you can get links to the, both of those directly right from this week's show notes at wdwradio.com. Upcoming meets of the Month for November is likely going to be Saturday, November 14th or Saturday, November 21st. Still looking to lock in an exact date or location. For December, we're actually going to have two meets in December because Friday, December 11th, we're going to have the normal WDW Radio Meet of the Month. I'm also working on an exact location and time for that. Probably going to be in the early evening for anybody that wants to go to Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party that night. But we're also going to be doing the first ever and sort of a celebration of our first year Celebrations Magazine Meet on Sunday, December 13th. That's going to be in France over in World Showcase. That will be at 2 o'clock. Again, I'll put links to all these, including the Celebrations Meet, in the show notes. You can also go and check out the fan pages for WDW Radio and Celebrations Magazine over on Facebook and in the forums. Speaking of Facebook, if you haven't joined the fan page yet, come on by, join the page, friend me up there as well. Also be sure you follow me over on Twitter on twitter.com slash Lou Mangiello. I post numerous updates throughout the day, sounds from the park, games while I'm there, special offers, contests exclusive to Twitter, and so much more again. Links to that right over at wdwradio.com. Also, on the site this week, look for even more new videos. They're going to be at wdwradio.com. If you subscribe to the show on iTunes, they'll automatically be downloaded. I've got more coming from d twenty three. D23 Day 1 and Day 2 recaps are already posted. I also posted our recent Food & Wine walk-around and review. I have two more parts of the next two days of D23, as well as some exclusive content that you will not find anywhere else. And more, definitely stay tuned to the site or please subscribe to the show in iTunes. Lots of other things going on backstage at WDW Radio that I can't quite tell you about yet but I will be announcing in the next few weeks and months, so definitely stay tuned. And, of course, don't forget, go back. If you're a new listener, check out some of the older episodes that are available on the site or on iTunes. All the episodes are always available there. If you have a question that you want answered on the show, you can email me at lou at wdwradio.com, or if you want to be heard on the air, you can leave the voicemail calling it by calling the toll-free voicemail line at 888 888- have to give one more quick big many many thanks to everybody that came by the WDW Radio Live video broadcast and chat this past Saturday night. We had a few hundred of you in and out throughout the evening from around the world. We chatted for about four plus hours I never seem to stop when I say I'm going to Uh, I had so much fun talking to you guys, doing some giveaways and I promise if you missed it I will do it again very, very soon. If you did miss it, if you've never seen it before, if you missed the D23 Expo coverage, it's basically a real-time, interactive video chat where I'm broadcasting audio and video. You can come into the chat room, talk to me, ask questions, talk to other Disney fans as well. Again, best way to find out about when these take place is by uh, following me on Twitter or joining me uh, on the fan page on Facebook or friending me up over there. Thanks, as always, to my partners and sponsors, including Mouse Fan Travel, for all your vacation planning needs, especially to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, the Disney Cruise Line, and Adventures by Disney, Chantel and her team over at DVC and Sarah and everybody over at All Star Vacation Homes. They have more than 150 vacation homes within five miles of Walt Disney World. Everything from two-bedroom condos up to seven-bedroom homes with pools, so much more. You can find the link over to All-Star Vacation Homes right on the website or go visit allstarvacationhomes.com. And as always, my friends, thank you so much for taking the time and tuning in again this and every week. It means the world to me. I appreciate it so, so very much. And if you like the show, all I ask is that you please help spread the word let others know about it, come review the show on iTunes, again, come say hi on Facebook and join the WDW Radio Show fan page or the forums at WDWRadio.com and until next time my friends, remember to always keep moving forward take that first step towards following your dream, and most importantly I hope you guys have a great great week this week so until next time, see ya
3: hey lou this is jay hart also known as spine on the forums
2: and everywhere else online and my mom and i are right here in Fantasyland in the magic kingdom say hi mom hi lou we've been having a great time it's only our second day here we came yesterday on october 1st we're staying till thursday october 8th and we're doing and we're doing the parts at our own leisure like what many times you recommend to do and we're
3: having a having a much more memorable, much more fun time doing it. Well, my, um, we're going to get back to doing more fun. Um, as always, great work with the show, and, and hopefully we'll see you someday in the park. Hey, Lou, this is Nick from Arkansas. I just wanted to chime in and say I just finished listening to your podcast about the top smells in Walt Disney World, and the first thing that popped in my head when you all mentioned that was the water smell on the water rides, i got to say. Very powerful and right there with you, Lou. You're not alone. Uh, I also want to chime in and say how cool I think it is the new Disney give-a-day, get-a-day promotion is. It seems like Disney's really making a step to uh, help better our world and, you know, keep us moving forward. So thanks, Lou. I uh, love the podcast. love the show. And uh, very excited to be going down to Disney in uh, May of next year. See you around. Bye. Hey, Lou. This is Nancy from North Carolina. Just finished the race for the pace 10K. And I got my special medals for doing the Everest and the Thunder and Lightning. And I just went around the station. Chicken and rice,
4: not so much. uh, Empanadas, yummy.
3: And the strawberry shortcake was so good. It had little Mickey Mouse sprinkles on it. It was really, really cute. So this was a lot of fun. The course was a little narrow, but it was a great race. It was a nice day. Everybody looked like they're having a great time. Hope you are. See
4: ya. Hey, hey, hey. hey,
3: Louis, John from North Carolina, just finishing up our vacation here in Walt Disney World, on main street candy shop right now, Saturday night, closing down the place. Anyway, just wanted to uh, say hey, and just got a brand new pen for my daughter. She gave me a world's best dad for bringing her here for her, her surprise birthday gift for her 13th birthday for vacation. And then uh, a couple little things we saw, look looked like the Rainmaker over on Thunder Mountain, has been recently painted, and also, if you look... Um, across from Tony's Town Square, above the Hat Shop, second floor window at night. There's an old-fashioned um, apartment we just saw on the window lit up at night. We never noticed before. Anyway, well, uh, say hi to all the listeners. Bye.
0: Hey, Lou, it's James calling from Pickering, Ontario, Canada, better known as Disney North on many Disney sites. Uh, about halfway through, your show number 139 is great so far. Uh, that was fantastic news to hear about uh, that rail link between Tampa and Orlando. Uh, I'm a huge lover of Clearwater Beach; it's one of my uh, probably the best beach in North America, even compared to some of the Caribbean countries. So that's really exciting news. The other thing I wanted to um, mention, and you were talking about the food and wine festival. Uh, the one thing that I, I recommend, highly recommend, first time goers to do is definitely go and do the wine seminars. I know there's a small cost associated with them now, but uh, even the small costs it, it seems pretty reasonable. Go and do it. it. They're fantastic. The very first one that my wife and I did about three or four years ago um, was for a California winery called Gergich Hills. Uh, never had heard about it before we went to the wine seminar. Uh, after the fact, found out how expensive their wines are and to be able to sample them for free at the time was was just unbelievable uh, because they're so expensive I would not buy them now but to be able to go and do a free sampling was was definitely a hit uh, the other one we did was uh, un, uh, uh, un- I'll get it out. Unoaked oaked wines uh, a couple of years ago, that was also a really, really good uh, seminar. So, yeah, definitely go and do the wine seminars. They are worth it. Uh, thanks, and we'll uh, listen
3: uh, closely to your next uh, episodes. Bye. Hey there, Lou and fellow Disney fans. Uh, my name is Woody. I'm calling from Atlanta. Just wanted to mention that I just saw the Disney Christmas Carol train which was fantastic. If the goal of the mo- of the train was to get me to go see the movie, well, I'm I'm ready right now to go see the movie. Uh, just some amazing special effects and amazing production and uh, pretty nice setup uh, with the Christmas carolers and and kind of weird to hear all this in October. But still, um, looking forward to the movie and wanted to encourage everyone to go and see it. It's uh, I think it's headed down to Florida next from here, and then it'll head up the eastern coast, and uh, it'll end its journey in uh, New York. So uh, everybody have a check into that, and uh, Lou, thanks so much for all you do. We've really enjoyed your show lately, and uh, coming up on our 10th year anniversary trip to Disney in just about a week or so at this point. So very, very excited. Hope you everybody's having a great day, and uh, we'll see ya.
4: Hey Lou, it's Josh. Uh, calling from uh it's actually it's kinda cold and rainy outside in Michigan today. Uh it's getting that time of year where the leaves are starting to fall. Um I'm glad to hear that uh D twenty three went well. Uh that must have been an amazing event. Um I know the Dick Cook presentation must have been great, but um so D twenty three. Uh I heard how incredible it was. And I'm going to try to save up my money, and I'm going to try to fly to Los Angeles. Um, if they're having another one, they're having another one next year. Um, don't be surprised to see me. It'd be great to be there for four days, and uh, I might have to stop by Disneyland because it's going to kill me not to be there and uh, be right across the street. So, uh, everyone, I hope you're doing fine, and uh, remember, if we can dream it, we can do it. See ya. Hi, Lou. This is Paige from Washington, D.C. I, uh, I left a message a few weeks ago, and you put it on the show. I was talking about how I was applying for the Disney Career Start program and how I couldn't wait to get that piece of mail. Well, today I got it. I'm going to be a merchandise cast member at Walt Disney World, and I can't wait to see you. Bye. Hey, Lou. It's Evan. Um, I was just... Um, on uh the live chat and you just gave me the backpack because i've been calling in and stuff but um i want to thank you so much for doing that i i'm i'm speechless thank you so much um keep on doing what you're doing thanks see ya
3: hey lou this is mary joe collins calling you from epcot food and wine festival i'm here with my daughter emily my son wyatt and we're just enjoying the festival we ran the emily and i ran the race for the taste this morning 10k and thankfully we both finished and she wanted to say something to you here she is
4: hey lou, this is emily and i just wanted to say that we had a blast and i've finished so that's all that counts bye see you lou